Today, we are wrapping up our series entitled, Killing It. Now, if this is your first Sunday in the series, first off, thank you for being here. Really glad that you decided to come this morning. But if you really want to get the most out of the series, go back and listen to the first two installments. It's only a three-part series. You can find those at hammockstreetchurch.com or on our YouTube channel. I promise you it will, it will really make things kind of make all the sense in the world. Not that today won't make sense. At least I hope it will. But uh, you get a lot out of it when you listen to the whole thing together. Anyway, what's the series about? Well, the series is about killing that thing in us that has the potential to kill everything good in and around us. And that thing is pride. Remember that? Now it's not the pride that you feel properly when your kids do something noteworthy or when you've helped somebody else. It's okay to feel good about that. We're talking about the pride that you feel was wounded that causes you to yell at your kids when they embarrass you in public. You know, if you have kids, there's a really good chance your kids maybe one time, one time in their lives embarrassed you in public. Anybody relate to that? My, my youngest son, Quinn, um, who a lot of you guys know, he's 25 now, and uh, he's mostly on his way to being a doctor. When he was in Target years ago, when he was a little one, he was a tantrum kid, and so he would just drop to the ground whenever he didn't want to do something, like take a step or something like that. You know, and we, we've had many, we had many a moment where Quinn embarrassed us in public like that, but I don't know. I'm not talking about the pride that makes you yell. Not that I yelled, mind you, but you can't prove that I did. Anyway, <laughs> we're talking about the kind of pride that, that causes some of you, and it's, it's usually guys, and I don't mean to be sexist about this, but it's usually guys, to overcoach your own children when they're playing a sport. It's kind of funny how that works. If you're a coach for your kids' teams, I was a coach for my kids' teams, you can coach everybody else's kid like you're a normal person. But when it's your kid, your own kid, you just turn into a crazy person. Why is that? Well, it's because your pride makes you feel like your reputation is at stake. I can't have my kid acting or behaving or not playing well. So you just overdo it. And that's because of that kind of pride. That, that kind of pride is the same kind of pride that causes you to inside kind of rejoice when you see somebody else stumble, or when you see somebody else fall. The, the Germans have a word for it. They call it schadenfreude, right? I saw someone mouthing that, right? Yeah, which means you take pleasure at someone else's misfortune. So it's, it's that kind of pride, the kind of pride that makes you cheer for their misfortune on the inside, the kind of pride that makes you feel better about yourself when you see other people failing. That's such a bad look on you, by the way. And that's the kind of pride we need to kill. We need to kill that kind of pride, ladies, that keeps you from apologizing to your husbands. You men need to kill the kind of pride that keeps you from initiating that conversation that you need to have with your wife. Because, well, you know she was 95% wrong, but you were still 5% wrong. And she doesn't need to come your way, as you think, because you won the percentage battle. No, that's pride. It's a pride that shuts you in. It's a pride that shuts other people out, and it also shuts God out. Well, the last time we were together, we talked about three P people. If you missed 
last week, the 3P people are people who've got a little bit extra power in their world, a little bit extra prestige in their world, and, and maybe more than the average amount of possessions. And last week we decided that, you know, as people who live in the United States, all of us are, in one form or another, 3P people to somebody else in the world. And we discovered a powerful verse from the Old Testament that addressed how God feels about that. I'm going to put that verse up on the screen, and I want us all to to read this verse out loud. I'll get it started. So one, two, three, ready, go. The Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Everything we have actually comes from God, comes from our Father in heaven. And as a result, we don't have a reason to be arrogant. We don't have a reason to be, pro- to be proud. We never have an excuse to look down on anyone else. Well, today we're going to talk about how each one of us has an appetite for known. Each one of us has an appetite for known. We all want to be known by somebody And we want to be known for something. And before you say to yourself, oh, wait, this isn't for me, I want you to think about this. Every single one of us wants to be known for something. Each one of us has an audience in mind when we get dressed in the morning. You think about that? You you get dressed in the morning and you're saying, well, I want to look good for the people who are going to see me at church. I I want to look my best. Is this the right shirt? Are these shoes going? Should I cuff? Should I not? I mean, and we all think about these things. When we go to work, we all have an audience in mind who's going to see us at work. We all have an audience in mind when we leave the house. We all want to be friended. We all want to be followed. We all want to be liked. We all want to be mentioned. In fact, nowadays, we can't get enough friends or followers or likes or mentions. I haven't even brought up social media yet. But social media has taken that desire, that need to be known, and just blown it up, expanded it, exacerbated that phenomenon. Now, if you're here from the generation that doesn't get that, that these concepts don't resonate with you, think of it this way. We all want to be recognized. We all want to be admired. We all want to be sought after. We all want to even be envied. Right? I mean, that's why you bought the car you bought, isn't it? That's why you keep your car clean, those of you who do. (laughs) Years ago, I, I got a new car, and my boys were little, and we all got in the car. I brought it home. We all got in the car. And one of my young sons uh, at the time said to me, Dad, you're not going to make it messy like all your other cars, are you? See, he was prideful at that moment, not I. But we all, we all want that. We all want that admiration. That's why right before your husband, ladies, walks out, you say, you're not going to wear that, are you? Have you said that before? Because what you're actually thinking when you say that is, honey, I really don't care if you look ridiculous, but the way you look reflects on me. And I don't want anyone to think that I'm with someone who would leave the house wearing that. Guys, you think it too. But but I got to say, thankfully, guys, most of you, at least if you've been married a little long, a little while, you don't speak it out loud. (laughs) But you have seen your gal put something on, and on the inside, you're thinking, are you sure you want to leave the house on that? I'm going to be seen with you. There's something in each one of us that wants other people to envy us. And many times, 
it, it rises to the place where we base our own self-esteem on the way that people, a lot of whom we don't even know, but they surround us, and we base our self-esteem on the way that they look at us and the way that they act toward us. And when that happens, it's only a matter of time that this built-in need that we have to be known gets us into trouble. That's that pride that's in us that keeps other people out, that keeps God out. See, in a manner of speaking, we all live for the applause. That started very early in our lives. We all live for applause, but it starts very early in our lives. Here's a test. Every parent here, certainly parents in Florida, has experienced this phenomenon with their children. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Daddy, watch! Mama, watch! If you had kids, you've heard this more times than you can count. And maybe you were thinking, watch what? What you just did 34 times? Watch that again? They want you to watch them do the same thing over and over and over and over. Why is that? Because it's a thing in us, in all of us, that makes us want to be known, that yearns for the approval of others. Right from birth, we come into the world with an audience. It's, it's interesting. Studies suggest that, and I apologize to the moms that I'm going to tell you this, but, but I read it. It's a study, so here it is. Dad is the first audience that kids seek. We are born seeking approval from dad, and we can never get enough of it. Sadly, we often don't get enough of it. Even before we're aware of it, we crave approval from dad. And it's, it's likely because we crave approval from our heavenly father, which God showed us when he introduced Jesus to the public. Remember what he said in Matthew chapter 3? He proclaimed his approval for his son. Here's what he said. A voice from heaven said, God said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Numerous studies point to the fact that one of the main causes of so many issues in life is just when dads didn't share their approval of their children, with their children. It's so simple to fix, but it's a problem that remains. And it doesn't end there. As we get older, we look to even more people for approval. As we get older, now we're exposed to more people. We look for approval from a, a teacher or a coach or a friend or a friend group or a person that we're interested in. And then we become adults, and there's an entirely new audience for adults. And we look to them for their applause. It could be our spouse. It could be our boss. It could be our supervisor. It could be a coworker. It could even be our own children. We look to other people for approval. And I say all this to say that to some extent, we all live for the applause of somebody. And it's natural. It's very normal. But it can't be left unchecked. Because unchecked, it can get you in trouble. Because it's an appetite. It's an appetite for known. And as is true of all appetites, as you feed that appetite, it grows. Appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. The more friends, fans, and followers you have, the more friends, fans, and followers you want. You can never have too many followers, never have too many fans, never have too many friends. You'll never say, I don't want to be recognized for what I've done. No one ever says, well, I don't like to see my name in print. 
I don't like to see my name up in lights. I don't want to be recognized for my hard work. I don't want my kids to appreciate me. I don't feel like anybody needs to thank me. We really don't say that. It's in us to be recognized. It is in us to be known. But here's the tension, and this is where we're going to drill down today. No amount of known is there that will satisfy our appetite to be known for the thing we've determined we want to be known for. A lot of times we get known for things we don't want to be known for. That's what it means to be infamous. That's a different thing. But known is a bottomless pit. Known is an appetite. It is never fully and finally satisfied. So let's pray, and then we'll talk about what to do about it. Okay? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together in community this morning. Thank you for this ecclesia you have built here at Hammock Street. Thank you for the people that have come for a while, the people that are new, the people that are checking things out. We're so excited you've put us all together. So God, as we take a look at your word this morning, we ask that you would use it to transform our hearts and minds and to help us draw closer to you. God, we love you and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Whatever you want to be known for at work, whatever you want to be known for at home, whatever you want to be known for as a parent, whatever you want to be known for in our culture, whatever you want to be known for in your school, there's no amount of known that will fill up your known bucket once and for all, which means, because it's an appetite, we're always on the quest for more recognition. Not in every area, but certainly in the one or two areas that we've decided are our areas, are the things that are important to us. And the one or two areas that we've rested our sense of self-worth and self-esteem on are the most important areas where we want to be known. Our appetite for known is powerful, and because it's powerful, it makes it dangerous. It makes it perilous. And that appetite has the potential to make us very weird. I have a seminary professor and a mentor who likes to say, listen, Christians, don't be weird. Don't be weird. It doesn't have to be weird. I know we believe it's interesting and it's extraordinary and it's supernatural, but it doesn't have to be weird. Because wanting all that recognition is, is an insidious way. It's, a, it's kind of a, a, a hidden way that pride can grab a hold of that remote control of our lives and begin to control us. It can undermine your authority it can undermine your potential, and that's why it's important that we deal with it, and we deal with it now. Now, there's a story in the New Testament, in the Christian Bible, that unlike last week's story, if you were here last week, you remember we told the story that a lot of us never really heard of before, but this is a story I'm going to venture a guess and say that everybody, most everybody, has heard. So this story is about a guy we refer to as John the Baptist. If you've ever heard of John the Baptist before, would you please raise your hand? Okay. I think everybody raise their hand. Right? Look around. Yeah? Raise your hands again. Yeah? Okay. Everybody. Okay. So do you think it's safe to say that John the Baptist is well known? Yeah? Easy one, right? Now, and I intend no offense with this next question. Just humor me here. Who here thinks that 2,022 years from now, People are going to be talking about you. Who here thinks that? Anybody? No. How about 200 years? How about 20 years? Maybe 20. Maybe kids will talk about you. Now, I ask these questions not to make you feel bad, but to get to this. The thing that we're about to discuss is not about 
how to not be known. I'm not trying to sabotage your known. I'm not trying to sabotage my known. But what we're going to learn from John the Baptist is how to handle your known, how to manage your known, how to have a known in your life so that it actually serves you well, so that it actually doesn't take over your life. So here's the story of John the Baptist. And I'm going to tell this story by jumping around between two of the Gospels. Remember the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? We're going to jump between Mark's Gospel and John's Gospel because both of them have information that we'll need for the whole story, so hopefully it won't be too confusing. So we're going to start off in Mark chapter 1, verse 4. If you have a Bible, please open to Mark chapter 1, verse 4. I use, I'm using the New International Version. For those of you who are not really familiar with Bible study, there are lots of English translations of the Bible. Quite frankly, they're all pretty much the same. They have minor differences that probably don't concern most normal people. Um, so any version you're reading is just fine, um, but I'll be reading from the New International Version in case you're wondering why your words are slightly different than what I'm reading. Okay. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So, with a brief reference to Old Testament prophets, you're going to see Malachi and Isaiah... Mark sort of springs John the Baptist on his readers. He, out of thin air, what happens? John the Baptist, what? Appears. He appears in the wilderness. And he appeared doing something that actually no one had done before. He was doing something that was a bit new. He appeared preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now, what was new about it was not that he was baptizing in general, but that John was baptizing others, other people. He was doing the baptism for them. See, scholars note that John the Baptist was the very first person that we know of that actually baptized another person. Let me explain how this works. Prior to this time, in a practice that the Jews called tevilah, which, by the way, is a practice that continues today in the Jewish community, the Jewish people participated in a ritual ceremonial washing or, or cleansing for a number of reasons. They would participate in Tevilah before they got married. Women would participate in Tevilah after that time of the month. Uh, people would participate in Tevilah after touching a non-kosher animal. Or whenever a Gentile converted to Judaism, there was Tevilah. But in connection with these washings and cleansings, the practice required them to immerse themselves. They immersed themselves in a special body of water that is known as a mikvah. You might have heard this before. Again, Orthodox Jewish people to this day still practice this practice of tevilah using the mikvah. But no one that we know of in history ever baptized another person. So people noticed this was a big thing. And not only that, John announced that this particular baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Not just cleansing of ritual impurity, but repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So as a result of this new thing going on, the whole Judean countryside, verse 5, and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Take a second here. Now, this is the kind of statement that we typically read and go right past because it doesn't seem to say anything. But it's actually pretty significant. Even if the statement isn't literal, but it's more hyperbole, like, like when you're talking about a movie and you say everybody's seen it, when you know, I mean, come on, 
literally everybody is seeing. I haven't seen it, right? Or, or when you talk about a party and you go, everyone was there. I mean, uh, obviously it's not literal, it's hyperbolic, but it makes a point. And the point is a lot of people were there. So this is the point we know. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem, we know there were a lot of people out there seeing John the Baptist, probably thousands of people. And now, in order to see John the Baptist back then, it wasn't like they just rolled out of bed, opened the door, and there's John the Baptist. No, they didn't get in their cars and drive a couple miles either. If everyone from Jerusalem went to see him, that means that a lot of people, a whole lot of people, had to make a huge commitment. They had to get up before the sunrise. And they had to begin walking for the entire day. And they'd arrive by sundown. They'd have to camp that night there. And then they'd spend the entire next day listening to John the Baptist. And again, they'd spend the night. And then that morning, they'd have to get up, wake up in the Judean wilderness and start this trek back to Jerusalem. And by the way, a trek back to Jerusalem meant they had to climb. Remember, Jerusalem sits on a hill. So they always have to go. That's why when we read the Bible and it says they, were, they went up to Jerusalem, and you go, wait a minute, uh, they, were, they were north of Jerusalem, they went down to Jerusalem. No, what they mean is they went up. You had to climb the hill to get to Jerusalem, and it was a challenging climb. All, all to say that this is not just some casual drop-by visit. This is a, a, a multi-day journey just to hear John the Baptist. And as the gospel writers tell us, Everybody, everybody in the whole Judean countryside went to hear him. Thousands of people went, which indicates thousands of people were thinking, this guy might, must be the Messiah. I mean, he's doing crazy stuff out there. I mean, this is the most exciting thing ever, which, by the way, means that John the Baptist was known, right? He was very well known. All the Judean people knew John the Baptist. Now we go to John's gospel. Now, We'll get to that in a second. John's gospel, and it's funny, it's parenthetical in this gospel, but that's the way it's translated. John the Baptist testified concerning Jesus, and he cried out. He was telling us about Jesus, saying, and we stop there. This is going to get a little confusing. Just stay with me. I'm talking about John the Baptist. I'm also talking about the apostle John, who was the one whom Jesus loved, and they're, they're not the same person. So I'm going to try to keep them separate, but if I don't, don't be confused because it's going to get more confusing in a minute. So just hang on. So John the Baptist was saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now, if you were watching Netflix or Hulu and you've been watching a while, you're binge watching and you heard somebody say that, you're going to pause. And you're going to go to whoever's watching it with you, huh? I talked about him, he comes after me, but he surpassed me because he was before me. Rewind that. I I, got to hear that again, right? Like, what? what? Like, I'm guessing when they heard it the one time, no one really understood what John the Baptist was talking about. But he had an urgency in his voice and the size of the crowd and the scene as a whole led everybody to think, whatever he just said seems really important. Of course, we know what John the Baptist was talking about. He was talking about Jesus, about whom he was saying, the one who's coming after me, Jesus, the one you haven't seen yet, is greater than me because he actually existed before me. Now, we know that. They didn't know that, but they were excited about it. And in all this excitement, 
caught the attention of Jerusalem's Jewish leaders. So we go to John 1, 19. Now this was John's testimony. Okay, this is John the Baptist's testimony. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. So picture the scene. So here's John the Baptist. He's baptizing other people. He's in the Judean wilderness. Thousands of people there. And then these important people show up. These important people from Jerusalem. They show up to get to the bottom of this huge event that's taking place. They wanted to know whether John the Baptist was that long-awaited Messiah. But they were afraid to ask him. Because they thought if we ask him and the answer comes out, I don't know, whatever way... This is going to start a huge uprising. If John the Baptist says, I am the Messiah, the the religious leaders are thinking, "Uh uh-oh, this is going to start an uprising against the Romans. And, And we've got a pretty good job here, and we really don't want to upset the Romans. But before they even asked, before they asked John the Baptist, are you the Messiah, John offers it up. John 1, verse 20. I am not the Messiah. And then they continued with their inquiry. They asked him, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah, the prophet? Why? Why'd they ask that? Okay. In the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, some think he was Malachi, the Italian prophet. No, it's Malachi. Malachi said that when God does something new in the nation of Israel, there will be a prophet that will rise up. And that prophet will be like the Old Testament prophet Elijah. So some people thought, well, Elijah's going to come back from the dead. Or maybe there's going to be another prophet who's just like Elijah. So they asked him, are you that guy that Malachi was talking about? That's what they asked. Are you that guy that Malachi was talking about? What did he say? He said, I am not. Then they asked him, okay, are you the prophet? Who's the prophet? Well, the prophet actually refers to a prophet unnamed, that Moses refers to in Deuteronomy 18.15. You go ahead and look that up, but it's a nameless prophet whom God instructed the Israelites to listen to when he showed up. Okay, so they're wondering, okay, they're trying to get a sense. These are the religious leaders trying to get a sense. Who are you, John the Baptist? Who are you? Okay, John the Baptist says, no, not that guy. All right, finally, verse 22, they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Now, you've got to imagine, the religious leaders, they've showed up, there's thousands of people, John the Baptist is holding court, he's got this big crowd, and they're getting frustrated now. I mean, he's got this crowd, he said he's not Elijah, he's not the other prophet, but he was somebody, somebody important, he was someone known. They needed to know, who are you? Who are you? Now, think about it. All eyes are on John the Baptist. Thousands of people paying attention. This huge crowd he's drawn. They're all staring at him. Important people are there. Powerful people are there. They're all paying attention to him. This is John's moment. He's known a little. He can be known a lot as soon as he says what he's next going to say. And here's what he says, John 1.23. He replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet. You'll see a lot in the New Testament that People speaking, oftentimes Jesus says they go back to the Old Testament and use words of the prophet from the Old Testament. John replied, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. When they asked him who he was, he didn't say, I am all that. He didn't say, bow down and worship me. He didn't say, I am your new leader. He didn't say, I am the Messiah. He said, I'm just a sign. 
I've attracted all you to myself so that I can point you in the direction of him, in the direction of the Lord. John used every bit of, I'm going to make up a word here, knownness that he had to make Jesus known. John drew a crowd so that he could make the one who was before John, who would come after John, who had surpassed John, Jesus, known. All right, let's keep going. Verse 24. The Pharisees, who had been sent, questioned him. All right, then. Why, then, do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John the Baptist answered them. You think this is impressive? You think, you think I'm something? Here's what he said, verse 26. I baptize with water, but among you, remember, Jesus is in the crowd, among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. There is somebody in the crowd. You don't even know who he is yet, so don't bother looking around. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I am nothing. The one who's coming after me, he's the one. I'm not even worthy to serve him. You think I'm something? I'm just the opening act. Just wait until the headliner takes the stage. Or, or to quote the immortal words of the theologian, singer, songwriter, Randy Bachman, you ain't seen nothing yet. Baby. Then the next day, something happened. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And John said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, right after this encounter with the guys from Jerusalem, the leaders from Jerusalem, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John said, the reason I am so well known is to make that guy over there known. And then... And then what happens the next day? John was there again with two of his disciples. Now, John had disciples too. Anytime you're a leader, you have people following you. That's what disciple means, a follower. So John had followers too. So John had followers. He's there with two of his disciples. And again, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. But this time something interesting happened. Next verse, 37. When John's disciples, two disciples, heard him say this, what did they do? They left John, and they followed Jesus. John's two disciples left him and followed Jesus, which meant that what did they do to John? They unfollowed him. That's the first time in history that we see someone getting unfollowed, right? You ever been unfollowed by somebody? Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, you ever been unfollowed? It kind of hurts, doesn't it? What did I do? Well, why'd you unfollow me? You never know. Well, that's what they did to John. They're like, oh, that's the guy you're talking about? That's the guy you've been waiting for? The, the guy who came before you and uh, came after you, but surpassed you, whatever all that means. That's the guy? Cool. <laughs> Don't follow him. Smell you later, John. I mean, that's what they did. They left John the Baptist to follow Jesus. John the Baptist then was losing his known. The question is, was he bothered by it? And for the answer... I want you to come along with me just a couple chapters ahead to John chapter 3. Now, we're moving ahead two chapters, but this is one of the things about the Bible sometimes is it doesn't run chronologically, so you have to understand where it's going. So what we're about to read happened pretty quickly, pretty shortly after the last verse we looked at. So why is it two chapters ahead? Answer, I have no idea. 
Bible doesn't tell us, but here's what I always say to people when they ask, why does the Bible say that? I don't know, but add it to your list of questions when you get to see God. So when you get to heaven, you should have a good list of questions. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? And why is this two chapters ahead? Lots of good stuff in there. So anyway, ask God that question. Anyway, here we go. John 3, 25. An argument developed between some of John, John the Baptist's disciples, and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Remember, that's what John is doing. He's baptizing ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, which meant they had a lot of respect for John, John as a teacher, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, right? They're talking about Jesus, the one you testified about. Look, he's baptizing everybody, and everybody's going to him now. They're saying to him, hey, John, they're going to Jesus. And if you're a Jesus follower, it means you've gone to him. And you've told Jesus, Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. And Jesus, I ask for your forgiveness because I believe that you died to pay the penalty for my sins. But you rose from the dead. And I know that you are God. I know that people saw that. I know that there are reliable witnesses by the hundreds. God, I want to turn from my sin. I want to give you my life. I want to follow you with my life. I want to make you my Lord and my leader. I want to trust you and follow you. And if you're one of those people, this next statement should be a game changer for you. This next statement is the statement that will allow you to have an infinite number of followers, fans, and friends, but never let it go to your head. This next statement has the potential to prepare us all for that day when we have fewer friends and we have fewer fans and we have fewer followers. This next statement prepares us for the time when the new kid on the block shows up and he or she is prettier or more handsome and smarter and more talented. And if you're in sales, their sales are just so much better than yours and you look like a beginner when you're around them. But if you take this to heart, It'll keep you from grasping and clinging to and trying to hold on to something that begins to slip through your hands. So here's what they said. They were saying, John, you're losing the crowd. Man, you got to do something. you got to do something. we got to get those people back. And to this, John replied, and here's what he said. A person can receive only what is given to them from heaven. John said, it wasn't about me. God gave it to me. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. You've heard that before. John replied, a person can receive only what is given to them from heaven. He didn't say, you're right, guys, we need to get them back. Or, or how did I lose all my followers? He didn't say any of that. He said, guys, all this knownness that I have, all this fame and fortune with which I can draw a crowd, where do you think that crowd came from? Where do you think the fame came from? Where do you think the knownness came from? Everything good comes to me from my heavenly Father. So not only wasn't John bothered by it, John was overjoyed because of it. That's what he wanted. John the Baptist knew that everything that was placed in his hands, all of his knownness was, was just temporary. All of his knownness was given to him as a gift for stewardship, which meant it wasn't his, but he got to hold it and take care of it and tend to it. And John never made the mistake of thinking that any of it was about him. That's very cool. Amen? Now, if you were here last week, it should sound familiar. We learned this lesson when we talked about King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he learned the lesson the hard way. Remember what 
We said last week, the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes, right? We talked about that last week. That's what Nebuchadnezzar knew. Anyway, John continues. He says, you yourselves, so he's talking to the followers, his disciples who'd been with him for a while. He says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. Like I've been saying the whole time, guys, I'm only known to make him known. And after this, John says one of my favorite statements in the whole New Testament. Bible uh, Pastors say this all the time. But this is kind of a life verse. I've always loved this verse. If, if I could have only one life verse, this would be it. And you should take a look at it too. You might like it. Here's what he says in John 3.30. John says about Jesus, He, Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. Isn't that great? John's desire to be known did not control his life. And that ought to go for us too. Any known we have, any reputation, any attention, any prestige, any notoriety that we have should be completely directed toward and focused upon one singular goal, the goal to make Jesus known. Now listen, at, you know, John put it that way. In the process of Jesus becoming greater, John said, and I need to shrink away. I need to become less. Why did he say it that way? Because that's the point. That's the whole point. Jesus is the whole point. Not our, not any of us. We're not the whole point. The point isn't our being known for any reason. Our being known for being right all the time or being bright or clever or insightful or vocal or, or passionate. A lot of times, you know, a lot of people want to be known for being passionate. People scream and yell, I'm so passionate. I want you to know me as a passionate person, really. People want to be known for being emotional or, or hurt or empowered. That's, that's not it. As followers of Jesus, it's not about us. It's never been about us. And we have to survive those appetites that we have for being known because we need to get over that or it will control our lives every day, as much as possible, every moment of every day. We need to remember who it was that placed our knownness in our hands and why he placed the knownness there. Everything we have, all of our knownness, all of our notoriety, anything we have comes from God himself. God has given us all the gifts that we have as well as all the opportunities that we have to enjoy the results of those gifts. God allowed us to be born where we were born. He allowed us to be able to speak or to sing or to sell or to relate to others. God made us as appealing to others as we are. God gave us our personalities. It all comes from God. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that's what you need to be focused on. What all your gifts are for, not for you. Now, as the Apostle Paul told the believers in Corinth, and we're going to see just a couple of these where this is uh, bolstered in Scripture, Paul said to the believers in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, so... Does that capture everything you do in your life? Eat, drink, everything else. Okay, this big catch-all, right? Well, eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Share those French fries for the glory of God. Enjoy that Coca-Cola for the glory of God. That's what it says. As he told the believers in Rome, for from him, from God, and through him, and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And then he says amen. You know what amen means? It's true. Yeah, that's what it means. It's true. Andy Stanley, our North Point partner church, Andy puts it this way. Our known 
is for his renown. I like that. Okay, so you go, okay, what does that look like? What does that look like in life exactly? And it's funny because I was thinking about that and I was thinking, I'm not sure I've ever seen it in the wild. If you know me well enough outside of me standing up here, you know certainly it's not, I'm not doing it. I try. I don't get it right. When I was preparing for this morning, I was trying to think of, of people that I personally knew who lived like this. Now, in trying to think of people I personally knew, I thought of people I don't know. I thought of Billy Graham. You guys know I'm going to say this name next. I thought of Tim Tebow. Sorry. But I don't know them personally. And I don't know what their day-to-day life looks like. But I did personally know a pastor, and I talked about him before. Some of you guys remember him. We have to go way back, though. We called him Dr. Joe. He was a quite elderly, retired uh, pastor when I met him, and he worked in the church I was at as a pastoral care guy. He seemed to live his life like that, but I I honestly didn't know him when he was younger and when he uh, had his sort of the peak of his ministry. He died many years ago. So as a result, I'm not even sure what a focused life for Jesus would look like, but I came up with an illustration. It's the best illustration I could come up with. I'm hoping you kind of get the point here. If I had that kind of focus in my life on Jesus, it'd be wonderful, but I have had that focus in my life here and there. So here's what happened to me years ago, many years ago now. I had to be examined for ordination by our denomination. I had to stand up. I had to take a written test. I had to stand up for an oral test in front of a big room full of people. And I have to tell you, I was totally freaked out by the prospect. And, and again, you know, I, I tried cases in my life. I've spoken to juries. I've spoken to panels. I've, I've argued cases in front of judges. That didn't bother me at all. Standing up for an ordination in front of a bunch of religious people, that freaked me out. So I studied like mad for that ordination exam. Without exaggeration, my wife is in the lobby, I'm sure, after church, you can ask her. I studied for that ordination exam for two years. Two years. Not just a little bit here and there. Every day for two years. And just to show you just how concerned I was about the ordination exam, in contrast, I studied for the Florida bar exam for four months. Four months. One of the reasons I studied so much for my ordination exam was because there was one examiner who had a reputation for trying to humiliate and discourage everyone who stood before him. That was in my head. I knew I was going to face that guy, and I was determined that he wasn't going to do that to me. When my exam time came, he's the only one in the room I focused on. My sole focus, I I was the only person I saw to this day. I can't tell you who else is in the room. I have no idea. Every answer I gave, I looked at him directly. It was for his benefit. Every response I uttered, I uttered at him. After the exam. By the way, I passed, so just so you know. Thank you. I'll be here all week. After the exam, I'm kind of looking back on the experience with a friend, and I had two realizations. One, I should not have given that guy so much real estate in my head. That was a bad thing. I shouldn't have done that. And two, I should have been focusing all my brain space on God. That's what I should have done. So as we wrap this up today, here's my point. What if we all focused our attention on living for our Heavenly Father? What if every day... God stood at the center of all of our thoughts and all of our actions. What if every single day wasn't about what everyone else thought? What if we could condition ourselves 
to remember that ultimately every opportunity that we have is placed in our hand by our Heavenly Father? What if we considered everything in our lives through the permanent lens of how does this advance the knownness of Jesus in my world? Like Paul said, all things are from him, through him, and for him. This is the perspective we are to maintain in all of our lives as followers of Jesus. Everything that comes our way, every opportunity, all of our knownness is there to point us back to who it's from and who it's for. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. So what does that mean practically? What does it look like in practice? It means get up every day and do your best. Do your best at work. Do your best at school. Do your best at home. Do your best in public. King Solomon put it this way in Ecclesiastes. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do it the best. Give it 110%. And then, at the end of every day, take a deep breath and listen for the applause. Not of men, but of heaven. Listen for the applause from the one who knows you best. The one who gave you all these opportunities. The one who gave you the gifts that you have that you get to take advantage of the opportunities that you have. Because in the end, that's the only applause that matters. And as you listen for the applause of heaven, learn to be content in the knowledge that it's all from God and it's all for God. All of our knownness is for Jesus's renown. Do that and you'll be well on your way to killing it to killing that pride. Do that and just watch God unfold in you the abundant life that he's promised. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunities you bring our way, for the knownness that you've given us. But help us, God, to make it our life's work to make you known. God, we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.